In this podcast, Dr. Stephen Bouchard, Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy, and Sleep Medicine at UCSF, will be discussing genetics of asthma in Latinos. This is a joint podcast by the Section of Genetics and Genomics and the Assembly on Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation of the ATS. I would like to start by asking you, what, what is your main goal in the study of genetic variation in, in Latinos and what is the association with asthma? Well, when I was a young trainee, I was fascinated by this observation by the Center for Disease Control when they looked at asthma prevalence and mortality in the United States. Essentially, it was highest in Puerto Ricans, about 24%, lowest in Mexicans, which is about 4%, High in African Americans, about 13%. Intermediate in whites, 10%. And when you look at mortality rates, it's fourfold higher in African Americans and Puerto Ricans than it is in whites. But 95% of the NIH research budget for lung disease has focused exclusively on whites. And Latinos, being Latino myself, are racially mixed meaning that we have African, Native American, and European ancestry. Yet we're all lumped together, whether you're Puerto Rican, Cuban, or Mexican. And so I was fascinated why the two extremes, Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, were on the tail end of this asthma prevalence and mortality rate. And as we started diving into this, we realized that we had to start studying genetic ancestry. So we built the largest study of minority children with asthma in the United States. We had 10,000 children, and we, we did detailed clinical measurements, including drug response, geocoded measures of air pollution on every single kid. We have social factors about discrimination and socioeconomic status. And now we're doing a vertical integration of looking at how genetic factors interact with social factors to influence clinical outcomes for asthma. But what this has led to is really a bigger understanding that, number one, minorities in general have been systematically left out of the NIH portfolio. When we looked at how many minorities or non-whites were included in modern-day genetic studies, we found that 94% of all modern-day genetic studies up to 2009, were only done in populations of European origin. And we published that in Nature in 2011. And in, 2000, in November 2016, another group out of Seattle repeated those analyses and found that the NIH numbers went from 4% in 2009 to 6% in 2016. So our study, even though we focused in on, initially focused in on minorities and asthma, has really led us down this journey and uh, led to tremendous exposure of the lack of diversity in all clinical and biomedical research. What type of barriers do you think contribute to that disparity? Well, number one, we published this in WASP Medicine um, recently, and, and we did a comprehensive analysis of the NIH, and there are several things that lead to this disparity. Number one, we have a lack of minority scientists that are participating in the design phase of studies. We often get minority scientists to be recruiters, but they don't participate in the design phase. We also looked at the NIH funding portfolio over the last 30 years, and we found a systematic bias against African-American and Asian scientists 
so African Americans had a 10% lower likelihood of being funded by the NIH. Asians had an 8% lower likelihood of being funded by the NIH. That went on for 30 years. And when we looked at the study sections, the majority of study sections are largely composed of white men. And that creates a systematic bias where you may not have study sections that are appreciative of studies done in minority populations. And there's a, there's a lack of trust from the minority community towards uh, science, primarily for reasons like Tuskegee. But I think the real thing is that we need to get minorities in the pipeline in healthcare and in biomedical research. And we've been saying that for years. And the number of Latino and African-American physicians in the United States is about 4% respectively. So then the number of physician scientists is even much lower than that. And we need to have a systematic effort on behalf of the NIH and, and the FDA to make sure that we have inclusion. And this is not just a social factor. This is a, has important biomedical implications. We know that genetic risk factors differ between populations. We know that clinical outcomes differ between populations. And so it's, it's not just a social travesty, it's bad medicine and bad science when we don't have diversity. I agree with that opinion. And, you know, I'm also in that group of minority scientists, and uh, I appreciate some of the efforts from the NIH trying to include people like, like us um, to expand you know, our reach to our communities and also to be very vocal about inclusion because it benefits all of us. Dr. Bouchard, you also mentioned that Latinos are, are very different. You have different groups that have a different ancestry. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you have identified in terms of genetic profiles of Latinos? In general, Mexicans in the United States, Mexican-Americans are 50% Native American, about 45% European, and there's about 4% African ancestry. On average, Puerto Ricans are 16% Native American, 25% African, and the remainder is European. So that's on a global average. Like if you did your 23andMe or Ancestry.com, they'll tell you that. But what really matters is what ancestry you are on a gene-by-gene level. So what we've identified is that there are genetic risk factors that are predictive of drug response to albuterol that are population-specific, meaning that they're only found in Puerto Ricans, only found in African Americans, or only found in Mexicans, and they differ. We call those private risk factors. But then we found some risk factors that were cosmopolitan, meaning that they're common to all groups. So let me give you a really good example. We have a blockbuster drug uh, that just was a uh, number one selling drug in, in the world, and it's called Plavix. And it's a medication for heart disease or stroke. It's a first-line medication. Plavix is a pro-drug, meaning that it needs to be activated by a particular enzyme, by a particular genetic variant. Well, that genetic variant is absent in 50% of Asians, 70% of Pacific Islanders. And... It's a travesty because the company was able to get it on formulary in Hawaii, which happens to be a Pacific Island and happens to have a lot of Asians. And so when an Asian person or a Pacific Islander person that in, was in Hawaii went to the emergency room for uh, acute MI or heart attack or stroke, they had a very high likelihood of not responding to the drug. So it was a placebo. And um, it only mattered what you were at that particular gene, what your ancestry was. So if you can imagine a, a Amerasian kid that's half white or half Asian, 
it just matters what that kid's ancestry is at that particular gene. It's called CYP2C19. If the gene is part Asian, then the person will have a high likelihood of not responding. If the Amerasian person inherited a European gene at that segment, then they'll they'll respond. And so that's what we're trying, what we're finding. And we're finding that genetic and pharmacogenetic risk factors differ in different populations. And um, a positive example was the most recently approved FDA drug for cholesterol. It's called PCSK9 inhibitor. They did a genetic analysis in whites, and they completely missed the gene. But when they did the same genetic analysis in African Americans, they identified the gene because the gene had a higher allele frequency or gene frequency in, in blacks than it was in whites. And that allowed them to hone down on the gene and the biology. And when they developed the new drug, works in blacks, it works in whites, it works in Asians, it works. And so this is where the diversity in the genetic ancestry of populations can be leveraged to clinical and scientific advantage. These are great examples of how discovery and pharmacogenomics can be applied to different populations. You were also mentioning other chronic illnesses, specifically cardiovascular disease, hypercholesterolemia. Is, is your group currently studying or collaborating with other groups looking at other uh, illnesses that affect Latinos and minority populations disproportionately? Yes. We have lots of collaborations. The one that I'm very proud of is a, a collaboration to study breast cancer in Latino women. And very interesting phenomenon. When you look at incident breast cancer, prevalence is high, highest amongst whites, lowest amongst Native Americans, intermediate in Mexicans. And we took advantage of that. The fact that Mexicans are half Native American and half European. And we did an, what's called an admission mapping scan in Latinas, Mexican uh, Latinas with breast cancer. And we assigned genetic ancestry at every single gene in the genome, and we were able to identify that if you've inherited a Native American gene on, on chromosome 6, that it was protective of breast cancer. And now we're, we're honing that in. We're finding up in that region to identify why. But if we can identify the actual gene, the SNP, and the biology behind it, we might be able to develop a drug that will be generalizable to everybody who's at risk for breast cancer. So that's that's probably my proudest example. We published that in the journal Nature uh, uh, last year, and um, it's it's a good example of how we've moved from studies of asthma, um, and the, the work we do is generalizable to lots of other diseases. You were also describing a very detailed quantification of the environment that these uh, yes. children... Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I, I think, you know, that's also a reflection of uh, socioeconomic differences that for respiratory health, we always have to consider. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So we recognized that social and environmental factors play a role in asthma. We demonstrated that air pollution has differential effects on causing asthma. We demonstrated that for a given amount of air pollution, particularly uh, NO2, that Latinos and African Americans that were in the same neighborhood exposed to the same air pollution responded differently. For the same amount of air pollution, African Americans were 43% more susceptible to developing asthma than their Latino counterparts. 
And what that suggests is that perhaps that there are genes within the African population that are less capable of metabolizing uh, air pollution toxins or what we call xenobiotics. We also determined that socioeconomic status helps contribute to asthma exacerbation, but it operates differently in Latinos than it does in African Americans. The poorer you are as a Hispanic, the better your, your clinical outcomes, whereas the poorer you are as an African American, the worse your clinical outcomes. And we think that that might be due to social factors related to community and cohesion. Latinos tend to be very family-oriented, have large families, have a large social community network, where that is not always the case for the African-American community. And since we collected all these data, we have not only genetic data, we have social data, we have environmental data, we can now look at the vertical interaction between all these factors and see how social factors and environmental factors influence genetic factors. We just had a major publication that highlights this. Everybody agrees that epigenetics, described here as methylation, is shaped by social, environmental, and genetic factors. And we used our our study populations, the Puerto Ricans and Mexican populations, to ask this very simple question. How much of the variation in epigenetics explained by genetic ancestry and how much is explained by self-identified race and ethnicity and all the factors that correlate with race and ethnicity, meaning SES, air pollution, discrimination, skin color. And what we demonstrated was that 75% of the variation in epigenetics is explained by genetic ancestry. And 25% is explained by this social construct of self-identified ethnicity or race. And what that means is that there are different, likely different cultural factors, different dietary factors, different social factors that distinguish different ethnic groups from each other. And those two have an impact on epigenetics. So it has tremendously advanced our understanding of the whole concept of race, ethnicity, clinical, and biomedical research. So you brought the concept of epigenetics, and you've also described the multitude of factors that influence those epigenetics. I wanted to ask you the effect of nutrition what potential associations you have with diet and chronic illnesses like diabetes or asthma that also affect these communities disproportionately? Nutrition is very difficult to study because it's very hard to get accurate data on what people eat. The recall rate for dietary questionnaires is very low. So to to be completely honest, it's difficult to tell you an answer here on how nutrition impacts disease. But going back to the epigenetics and ethnicity and race being associated with 25%, that also, when you think about the idea of race and ethnicity, we view it as a shopping cart. It, it includes genetic ancestry, it includes social factors and environmental factors. Different ethnic groups eat different things. Uh, they do different activities. And you, it's hard to measure those, but we demonstrated clearly that factors that associate with uh, self-identified ethnicity or race that are you can't measure, but they are important clinically and, and, science, and biomedically. One of the things that you also brought up that I find fascinating is the contribution of Native American ancestry to Latinos 
And when we look at other at other groups, including the groups that have been studied the most, uh, those that have European ancestry, what is the the biggest contrast that you've seen in, in between those groups with significant Native American ancestry and those that are predominantly European? So when we did the comparison between different Latino ethnic groups, at least for asthma and breast cancer, the more Native American you are, the more protected you are from developing disease, these two diseases, breast cancer and asthma. That is probably not the case for things like diabetes, but we have a fundamental flaw in our system because Native Americans were not included in the original HapMap project or the genome project. And so we have very little understanding of Native American genetic ancestry. Having said that, we demonstrated in the New England Journal that genetic ancestry, at least amongst African Americans, was very significantly associated with lung function and that the current pulmonary prediction equations were largely inaccurate. And um, let me take a moment to explain. When someone comes into a hospital and some, the clerk does the intake form, usually that clerk assigns you to a racial category. And that racial category gets thrown into your electronic medical record and follows you. So it's propagated through the system. In the case of lung disease, when you do spirometry, the technician does the spirometry, the patient blows in and out of the spirometer, and then the patient is compared to a population average. And in the United States, we only have three population averages, one for African Americans, one for white, and one for Mexican Americans. Those are called the Hankinson equations. So the question that I would ask is, where does Obama fit? Clearly, he is half African he is half white. So any technician would look at him and assign him to the African category. So we demonstrated that by using genetic ancestry, we can improve the diagnosis of lung disease or spirometry measurements in African Americans by as much as 15%. Then what we did is we said, well, can we replicate this in uh, Latino population. But in order to do that, we needed to have Native American ancestry measurements. We couldn't do that in the United States because there's a problem, political problem with the U.S. government and Native American tribes. In Mexico, we had field workers who were involved in community recruitment efforts, and we built the largest repository of indigenous Native American populations in the world. And we demonstrated that, number one, Native American populations are very, very distinct from each other. They're about genetically as distinct as whites are from Asians. So we asked a special question. We already demonstrated that ancestry influences lung function, but does this type of ancestry, particularly in this case, does the type of Native American ancestry influence lung function? And what we found when we included different types, so Native Americans, indigenous individuals from southern Mexico, who tend to be short compared to Native Americans from Northwest Mexico, tend to be tall. When we included genetic ancestry in the pulmonary prediction equations, it also improved the accuracy of the diagnosis of lung disease by 10% amongst Mexican populations. And we published that in the journal Science in 2014. We've been doing precision medicine long before President Obama started talking about precision medicine. So we're using genetic ancestry to make these clinical diagnoses more precise. That is a great summary of all your efforts 
trying to bring minorities to understand this is a little bit better. And uh, I, I have a question about what is your view of the future of precision medicine in minorities? My view of the role of precision medicine in minority populations is that we need better effort. We need more funding to get into minority communities. We need more minorities. We need more minority scientists at the table when they're designing the experiments, when they're coming up with the plan. And that's going to take more money from the federal government. It's going to take more money from industry. And I'd like to give you a good example. When the first software came out for voice recognition. When it first came out, it did not recognize female voices. And that's a problem. And the when they did the analytics as to why what happened in the design phase that allowed for this major flop, they looked at all the engineers and they're all male. There's not a single female there that was in the design phase. And we realized that we had a big problem. Even today, 85% of computer scientists are male. And when you have a fundamental flaw like that. You're not going to achieve your goal of developing good tools. We need, and I, it sounds like a tangent, but it's analogous to medicine and science. We need more minority scientists at the table during the design phase. We need more minority scientists in the field helping to recruit more minorities. If we don't have that, the Precision Medicine Initiative will fail. Dr. Burchard, you also have a, a very extensive history of collaboration with colleagues abroad. And I wanted to ask you, how can we work together with, with people outside of the United States, particularly Latin America, to understand our, the, the health of our communities better and to also engage into initiatives that can also be applied to populations in Latin American countries? And this goes back to the diversity question. It's pretty clear that we need more Latino scientists that are bilingual, bicultural, that are permeable, and that can interface between the U.S. and Latin American countries. As of today, uh, about 70% of the U.S. population is Latino, a uh, majority of which uh, are, are Mexican, and only 4% of physicians in the U.S. are of Latino descent, even lower for Ph.D. scientists. So this goes back to a pipeline issue that we have to address, and uh, unless we address it, we'll, we'll have a current status quo. And I'm sorry to say, but, you know, when I started medical school, uh, the number – I started medical school in 1990. The number of uh, Latino physicians at that time was 4%, and as of 2016, it's still 4%, despite the fact that the U.S. population of Latinos has increased uh, significantly where we are, Latinos are the second largest uh, population in the United States, and uh, um, that's a travesty. I wanted to ask you for a closing remark, and I really appreciate all your insights into the specific aspects of precision medicine and asthma in Latinos. And Thank you. I think that in this day and age and political environment, we need to make sure that precision medicine is socially precise. It's pretty clear that there are differences in disease prevalence, severity, mortality, and even drug response that vary by race and ethnicity. We need to reverse the trend uh, that, at least for pulmonary disease, 95% of the research has been done in white as recently as to a year ago. Uh, we need to make sure that we have diversity in all aspects of clinical and biomedical research. 
And it's not just a social issue. It's it, It'll benefit science, biomedical research, and everyone will benefit. It'll float all boats. Thank you very much.